0: Well, I don't know about you, but waiting is awful. Like, I I, I hate waiting. And if you're waiting with your kids, like especially smaller kids, that's the worst. Right, parents? I mean... Waiting anywhere for any length of time with your kids is is very difficult. Maybe you've waited for a table before, right? And and all you can think about is eating like that incredible food, but you're waiting for this table. You wait at the doctor's office, and that's annoying, right? You wait, especially if you're a child, for Christmas morning when you can open up that gift and you see some of those gifts under the tree and you go, if you're like me, and you shake some of them, right? And and you turn one upside down and poke a hole in it and you're kind of trying to look and see what it is and, and then trying to put it back so that no one notices, you touch it, right? You're you're waiting for that gift. Guys, maybe this morning you were waiting on your wife to get ready. No elbows. Maybe, wives, you were waiting on your husband to get off the pot, right? Uh, we, We hate waiting. This past week, about a week ago, my wife and I were waiting in plain view for like five hours. Our son Levi plays basketball for Cooper and they had a game at 12.30 and then another game at 7.30. And so we had to wait in Plainview for five hours. Now, Plainview is a great place. It's just if you're from there or like live there or whatever, but it's just not somewhere I want to spend five hours waiting with nothing to do, right? We ended up going into downtown square. They've been revitalizing great shops there. So it ended up being fine. But we were just like thinking all week and on the drive to Plainview that morning, like, what are we going to do in Plainview for five hours waiting on this game? The, the worst wait right now for me is waiting for Whataburger. Like, I love my Whataburger, right? But waiting in that line, it's just, it's awful. So, we don't go to Whataburger as much because we don't want to wait in that line. Many of us are waiting. We're waiting on a resolution. We're waiting on a diagnosis. We're waiting on a relationship. We're waiting on a breakthrough. We're waiting on a rescue, maybe. We've all experienced the agony of waiting. Well, the word advent itself means arrival. It means an appearing or a coming into place. And Christmas advent commemorates the waiting for and the arrival of the advent of the Messiah, the son of God, the king that would reign on David's throne forever. You see, Jesus, the Messiah, didn't arrive without a wait. No, his people, specifically the nation of Israel, waited hundreds and hundreds and some thousands of years for the Arrival for the advent of their Messiah, for this king that would reign on David's throne forever. In fact, the, the passage we're going to look at today in Isaiah chapter 9, it is 700 years before the time of the Messiah, before the arrival, the advent of the Messiah. And so today we're going to see like one chapter of the backstory of the Christmas story, the first chapter of the Christmas story, if you will, like starts in Genesis chapter three, where God tells Adam and Eve, like the seed of the woman is going to come and crush the head of the serpent. Like that's the backstory. First chapter of the backstory to the Christmas story. The, The second chapter, if you will, is God telling Abraham, like, Hey, through your seed, through your family, like all the nations on earth are going to be blessed. That there's going to be a seed, a family member in the line of Abraham that will come and be a blessing to all the nations. The third chapter, if you will, in the backstory of the Christmas story is God telling David that he would never cease to have a king reigning on his throne in 2 Samuel chapter 7. And today we're going to look at kind of the fourth chapter, the, the prophets prophesying that there will be this Messiah who will come and who will reign on David's throne forever. We're going to be in Isaiah chapter nine. If you got your Bible, you can turn there. If not, verses will be on the screen, but this is a great time to open our app, the City Church Lubbock. It's in your app store. You can follow along with us in the message notes, all the verses and the points and the quotes. It's all going to be there. And if you're one of our students, I see a lot of you up in the balcony. Some of you down here, right? Get out your phone. I know you guys take notes every week in youth with Matt. So no excuses. All right. If you're one of our students, get out the app, It's a great way to lean in and engage and take notes and fill in the blank as we go. All right, Isaiah chapter 9. Would you stand in honor of the word of the Lord this morning? And Jay Tatum, son of Mark and Laura Tatum, is going to come and read for us Isaiah chapter 9, verses 6 and 7. Jay? For a child is born to us, a son is given to us, the government will rest on his shoulders. And he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. His government and its peace will never end. He will rule with fairness and justice from the throne of his ancestor David for all eternity. The passionate commitment of the Lord of Heaven's armies will make this happen. Awesome job. Thank you, Jay. You may be seated. All right. Yeah, give him a hand. Way to go, bud. All right, so here's where we find ourselves in the story. The nation of Israel has rebelled against God. They've engaged in idolatry. And and now, as judgment, as discipline from God, they've been taken into captivity. They've been wiped out like this is an official nation. Isaiah chapter 8 says they're in darkness. Isaiah chapter 9 says they're in darkness, which is the hiding of the Lord's face. So the darkness that they're experiencing, this this word means that God has hidden his face, his hand of favor and blessing and protection for his kids, for Israel, as a discipline. They find themselves in captivity. In chapter 8, we learn that many in the nation of Israel are looking for a solution, like they're looking everywhere. They're going to and fro, looking for a solution to this brokenness, to this darkness that they're experiencing. They're looking for a solution. They're looking and they're searching for peace. In all the wrong places. They're looking for rescue in all the wrong places. But Isaiah in chapter 8 says this. But the remnant of God, these faithful ones, these faithful children of God among the nation of Israel are waiting on. They are hoping for it. That Their their prophets are pointing to the arrival, to the advent of this child that will become a savior, a, a rescuer, a ruler. In Isaiah 9 verse 1, we learn that this child king is not just going to rescue Israel, but because he's coming from the land of the Gentiles, because this light is going to begin to shine from the land of the Gentiles, we learn that this advent of this king is going to be for all nations. This king is not just going to be a king over Israel, he's going to be king of the world. This is a global king. This is a universal king for all people. In verse 2 of chapter 9, Isaiah says a light is going to shine in the darkness. And I love this, this. This picture of light shining in the darkness points to this creative, revelatory act of God just like in creation. Like when God said, let there be light, and there was light. There was no light before. There was nothing but darkness. And God said, let there be light. And by the power of his word, light shone in the darkness. Isaiah in chapter 9 is saying the arrival of this child is going to be this spoken word of God made flesh. And in the exact same way of Genesis chapter 1, it's going to be this light, this miraculous light shining in the darkness. God is going to once again. Speak light into the darkness. So Isaiah, the remnant, the faithful remnant of God among the nation of Israel, they're looking forward to this advent, to the arrival of this child. And this morning, we're going to talk about what that means as we break down verse 6 and 7. So, so number one, the arrival, the advent of this child that's going to be given to them, Isaiah said, is first of all, the advent of grace the advent of grace, the arrival of grace. Look with me in verse six, Isaiah said this, this child is going to be given to us, that this word given is a gift that you receive that you do not deserve. Isaiah is saying, we're, we're in darkness, we've turned from God, we've rebelled against God, we don't deserve a rescue, but God is going to send us, a, he's gonna give it to us. This is a gift, this word given, in Isaiah Chapter nine verse six, this word "gift," it's a gift of divine grace to sinners. It's a gift that you do not deserve, that you did not work for, that you did not perform and receive. It's a gift. And so this answer to the darkness, this, this solution that, that Israel needs, that they're looking everywhere, they're, they're searching to and fro for an answer to this peace and to the brokenness and to the darkness. And Isaiah says this, this answer, the, the solution, is, is not do better and try harder. Did you see that? It, it wasn't, hey, we're, we're in darkness, uh, we're struggling, right? We're, we're suffering, we're in captivity, we're in bondage, so... Listen, guys, we're gonna do better and try harder our way out of this. No, that's not what Isaiah says. Isaiah says, no, we're in darkness and we're not gonna do better and try harder, but God is going to send something to us outside of ourselves because we got ourselves into this mess and we can't, we can't get ourselves out of it. So it's not do better and try harder. Have you ever noticed like as you get older, you increasingly, like, suffer these occasional humiliating, like, micro-injuries. Have you noticed this? Like, as you get older and, you know, someone's like, well, what's wrong? Like, how'd you get hurt? And you're like, I slept wrong. It's embarrassing, Right? I mean, or, or like I was driving and I was checking my blind spot and I yawned at the same time. And now I've got this pain in my neck and it goes all the way down to my back and into my toes. Right? I mean, what is that? Or like, how'd you get hurt? Well, I drank some water too hard. I mean, come on. This is the, the we, we are so weak. Right. And we think that by doing better and trying harder and through our own effort, we're somehow going to make ourselves right with a perfectly holy and righteous God. Come on. Come on. We're so weak, we get hurt when we rest, right? They're, they're, come on, let's, let's get real. There is no way we are going to do better and try our hardest so that our good deeds can outweigh our bad deeds so that we can somehow be right with God. No, Isaiah says that the answer that we need, it's gonna come from outside of us. You're, you're getting a child that's going to save and rescue you in spite of what you deserve. And this has gotta be the most humiliating thing ever, right? To, to someone who wants to do better and try harder and work hard and, and I, I'm going to do it? Isaiah says, no, you, you can't. We haven't and you can't and your savior is going to be a little baby. I mean, how humiliating is that? I can't save myself and this, this child, this baby is going to come and rescue me and save me. You see, this whole story all throughout the scripture, this whole story isn't about knowing the right things and then performing those things. This is the only story in the whole world. This is the only story that says about us, no, you're not going to perform your way. You're not gonna do better and try harder your way into being right with God and having a relationship with God. Like, you're not going to do better and try harder. This this story says, no, you and I have traded the glory of God for a lie. We've worshiped and served created things rather than the creator. We are like sheep, Isaiah would say in chapter 53, that have gone astray. We've all gone our own way. This is the only story in all the world that says, no, you're not good enough. Our culture will say, you're good enough. You can be good enough. And this story says, no, 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 you're not good enough. You will never be good enough. You cannot save yourself. God rescues us through this child, Isaiah says, that's going to come. God's going to provide a rescue from this broken place that we find ourselves in, from our own pride and from our delusional self-effort. This child's going to come and rescue us. This is the advent of grace, receiving what you have not worked for, which you did not earn. Secondly, this is the advent of truth. It's the advent of truth. Isaiah says this child that's going to be born is going to be called a wonderful counselor. Here, this word counselor is one who's able to make wise plans. It's a ruler whose wisdom is beyond merely human capabilities. And, and Isaiah says this this counsel, this this truth, this wisdom is wonderful. So in one sense, it's it's one dress, like it's miraculous, like it's from God. This this is miraculous truth from God. But in another sense, it's also Wonderful! This counsel, this wisdom is wonderful. Like it brings joy. It brings pleasure. Our culture would like us to think otherwise. That, that the commands of God, the law of God, the truth of God is, is burdensome. And that you're never going to experience the, the joy. You're never going to fully self-realize and actualize, right, if you don't. Free yourself from the burden that is God's word, from his laws and from his commands. That's what our culture wants us to believe. That's not the biblical picture of the word of God, of the laws of God, of the truth from God. No, David said in Psalm 16, your word, God, your laws, your commands, your truth. He said, they're all good. They're pleasurable. They're wonderful. They make my heart glad. I rejoice in them. My body rests in your truth, God. My body, I find rest In your laws and in your commands, your ways, David said, brings joy and pleasure. In Psalm 19, David says that your laws are perfect. They're perfect. They revive my soul. They give me life. They make me wise, David said. They bring joy. They bring insight. They're fair. David says they're more desirable than gold. Your word, God, your truth, your laws, your commands, they they are worth more than gold, David says. I love this. David says, they're sweeter than honey. They're not burdensome. It's nothing to free yourself from. No, they're sweet. They are sweet, life-giving nourishment to my life. David says, they are a reward to those who obey them. On the flip side, in Isaiah chapter 8, the the chapter before Isaiah 9 that we just read from, Isaiah says this, but those who contradict God's word, they are in the dark. They're believing a lie. You see, our our passion for you, for your kids, for your grandkids, is that they will know Jesus and they will know his word backwards and forwards. They will know what they believe and they will know why they believe. That's why in our kids' classes and in our youth ministry, they study the exact same passages that we do almost every single week. It's why we study the scripture here verse by verse and we preach exegetically, which means we preach verse by verse, not just in here, but in our kids' classes and in our youth ministry. And it's why I'm so thankful that we have a family pastor in Amber, a youth pastor in Matt that love God's word and they are totally on board with preaching through the Word. verse by verse to our kids and to our students so that your kids, so that you and your kids and your grandkids will know what they believe and why they believe it. You see, I I want my kids to have fun in their classes. I want them to have fun in in our youth ministry and, and they do have some fun, but that's not what I'm most concerned about. Like hear me here. I'm not that concerned about whether or not like they've had fun or not, whether they've been been entertained. That's not what I'm primarily. I'm concerned about whether or not they are learning about what they believe and why they believe it. And they're being challenged to follow Jesus, to forsake all the things of this world that are passing away and follow Jesus. That's what I'm concerned about. And as a parent, that's what you should be motivated and concerned about as well. It's why you and your family should be planted in a Bible-believing and Bible-preaching church. Not hopping around from one place to the next, but planted in a place, in a community of faith, where your family is learning God's word. This, This wonderful counsel that will change your life these words will be sweeter to you than honey and more desirable than gold. Listen, this is why your kids can't run the house because they don't always know what's best for them, right? If our kids were in the house, they wouldn't even go to school. The, ki- the, ki- the kids can't make decisions about church and when we go and how much we go and where they go and all that kind of, no, 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 they don't, kids don't know what's best for themselves. As parents who've been charged by God to disciple our kids and to lead our kids to follow Jesus, that responsibility, those choices fall on us. And so I'm not as concerned about whether or not my kids are having fun or if they're being entertained. No, I want them to be fed. I want them to be equipped so that they know what they believe and why they believe. That's our passion for you, for your kids, and for your grandkids. Next, the arrival of this child is the advent of revelation. It's the advent of revelation. Isaiah says this child's going to be called mighty God. This is a title for God himself. It's why Matthew begins his gospel with Jesus's human family of origin, showing how he is been born of mankind, like he is a human, he's fully human. But John begins his gospel with Jesus' divine origin, showing that this baby, this human, is both human and divine. John, in John chapter 1, says this, that this Jesus is the light who has shone in the darkness. Like, he is the fulfillment of Isaiah chapter 9, of this miraculous, revelatory word of God that will be spoken and will be this light that shines in the darkness once again. John says it's Jesus in John chapter one. John clearly saying that Jesus is the fulfillment of Isaiah chapter nine. All of the New Testament will say that Jesus is God in the flesh, fully human and fully God. You know, Paul thought he was right about God and right with God, but then he met Jesus. And he had a change of heart and a change of mind. It shows that we've all been wrong about God at some point in time because we've all changed our minds about God. So did Paul. He thought he was right about God and right with God, but then he met Jesus. And he, he would say in his letters to the church, it's like, Jesus came to reveal who God is and how to be right with God. There's, there's no reason to guess anymore. We don't, we don't have to guess. We don't have to Search around for man's best guess about who God is and what he's like and what he wants. No, we don't, we don't have to guess. We don't have to speculate. You can be right about God and right with God because Jesus said, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. The Father and I are one. Now that's either the worst blasphemy ever spoken, making him a liar or a lunatic, or he was right and he's Lord. And if you've seen him, you've seen the Father. Jesus said, the Father and I are one. If you've seen me, you've seen the Father. Paul would say in Colossians that Christ is the image of the invisible God. Hebrews chapter one would say he's the exact representation of the glory of God. All the fullness of God in bodily form is what the New Testament will tell us. And so if you want to look about, if you want to know about God, you you don't look inside you, We don't look inside of ourselves, especially because we we are shaped by our own wounds and experiences. We we don't look around at man's best guess. No, we look to Jesus, where God has ultimately revealed himself. C.S. Lewis was an atheist. He he didn't believe that if there was a God, that his creation could know him or understand him. He thought that would be impossible. But C.S. Lewis met Jesus, and then here's what he said about what he used to believe. He put it like this, Hamlet couldn't know Shakespeare unless Shakespeare wrote himself into the play. And here's what C.S. Lewis would say after he became a Christian. God has written himself into the play in Jesus so that we might know who God is and what he wants and how to have a relationship with him. God has written himself into the play God has revealed himself. Here's the way we put it all the time around here. Jesus is God in a bod. Jesus is God in a bod. The incarnation is the taking on of flesh. It's the putting on of meat. And so that's why queso is like so holy, like queso concarnate, right? It's the, the meat, right? This is God becoming flesh. It's God taking on meat. Jesus is God in a bond the revelation of God himself next this is the advent of protection Uh, Isaiah says this that he will be called everlasting father a father here is a benevolent protector it's the task of the ideal king and it's the way God all throughout the scripture reveals his relationship with his people that he cares for his people like they're his kids all throughout scripture God refers to himself as being our father and us as his kids He's the perfect heavenly father who always protects, always provides, always comforts, always disciplines in this perfect way. You see, what you've got to understand is the heart of God is the heart of a father who loves his kids and wants what's best for him. And so when we read the scripture and when our culture looks at the law of God, the, 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 the truth of God, they, they see this like angry King that wants to punish his subjects, and the, the testimony of scripture is in the way that God refers to himself, He's like, Just hear me, like, like, I'm a father, I'm a perfect heavenly father who just wants what's best for His kids. This is the heart of God, and then finally, this is the advent, it's the arrival of peace. This child that Isaiah says is going to be born to us is the arrival, it's the advent of peace. Isaiah says this child's going to be called the prince of peace. He's the ruler whose reign will bring about peace. This is the Hebrew word shalom, which means to be whole. It means to be complete. That This prince corresponds with our idea of an administrator. And so this child, this Messiah, this prince is going to be at one with God. He's going to be at one with his people. And he alone is going to administer the benefits of peace and wholeness and fairness and justice in his rule. You see, in the beginning, when God created the earth and the heavens, in the beginning, in the creation, there's absolute shalom. God creates and he says, it's good, it's good, it's good, it's shalom, perfect order, harmony, peace, like a symphony with all these parts working Together in perfect harmony, perfect relationship. But then sin enters the world. And with the fall, this peace, this harmony is broken. This shalom is broken. And now there's war. There's this being at odds with uh, God and each other and ourselves in the ground. There's this opposition between us and God and ourselves and others in the ground, right? The, the, the world becomes this war zone. There was peace. There was shalom. But now there's war between us and God and us and each other and us in the ground there's war. And what's the answer? Well, in Isaiah chapter eight, Isaiah says that many in the nation of Israel experiencing the, this, this war and the, the brokenness, right? The, 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 the darkness that they're experiencing. I, I, Isaiah says in chapter eight, they, they, they start going from one place to another. They're looking to and fro to find peace. They They go from one place to another, Isaiah says, weary and hungry. And because they're hungry, they start cursing God and cursing each other. They're looking everywhere to satisfy this this hunger, this weariness, to to fix the emptiness, to to fix the suffering, to to fix the darkness. They're looking to their own scholars. They're looking to their own solutions. They're looking to their own leaders. They're looking to their own power and strength to fix their problems. But Isaiah says in chapter 8, everywhere they look, they only find more trouble, more anguish, more despair, more darkness. And so in Isaiah chapter 9, we find the solution that the light is going to come from outside of us. We're not going to conjure it up. It's going to happen to us. that, That the arrival, the advent we really need, that our souls are longing for is a person. It's a person. The peace that you're searching for is a person. I love what one scholar said about this. Peace that the advent of peace that this advent of peace brings every sort of joy and pleasure ever known joy and pleasure ever known you know this time of year can remind you of what you don't have, what you wished you did have, what you wished was true the suffering the the waiting you you want the fix you want the peace, like, like now, we don't wanna wait. And what we learned in Isaiah nine is that in chapter eight and chapter nine, that the peace that we think we need, we think might be a position, a promotion, a present, maybe even a president. But peace isn't any of those things. No, Isaiah nine teaches us that peace is a person in fact, Paul would say in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 14, that Jesus Christ himself, that he himself is our peace. Peace is a person. And, and so the, the advent of Jesus means for followers of Jesus, for Christians, that there, there, there doesn't have to be any more fighting or, or posturing, like trying to get ahead of one another, positioning ourselves. Like that's, that's over and done with for the Christian. Jesus alone is the restorer of shalom, the peace with God, peace with ourselves, peace with each other, peace with the ground. In the first century, Rome, really representing the rest of the world, seeks what's called Pax Romana. It's the peace of Rome, and they seek this peace through their own might and power and by killing their enemies on a cross. Conversely, God chooses to bring peace By offering up his own son, dying for his enemies on a cross. Ephesians chapter 2, Paul says this, we we were objects of wrath. We we were not at peace with God. In fact, Romans 5 says that we're enemies of God. We're enemies of God. Under his wrath, because we've broken his law, we're going to pay the fine for our sin. Paul says it's the wrath of God. But Paul would say in Ephesians 2 and in Galatians 4 and all throughout the the New Testament that peace with God comes through Christ's substitutionary death where he pays our fine, where he dies the death that you and I deserve. He pays our fine. He dies in our place for our sin. And through his substitutionary death on the cross, we can have peace with God as our fine is paid for. That's why in Luke, when the angels come and announce the birth of Jesus They say, peace on earth. For who? For everyone? No. Peace on earth, they say, to those whom his favor rests. Like to those who have received the grace of God by their faith in Jesus Christ. The entire New Testament is going to preach that God sent Jesus to rescue us from our slavery to sin, our slavery to the devil, our slavery to the wrath of God. We couldn't save ourselves. We couldn't do better and try harder our way out of that slavery. And so God sent Jesus to rescue us, the light in the darkness, to rescue us from our sin and death. And so if you're here this morning and you've never given your life to Jesus, I wanna challenge you to do that today. To believe that Jesus died for you on that cross, that he rose again three days later, conquering your sin, conquering death, proving that he is who he said he is. God in the flesh. You see, Jesus said this, no one gets to the Father except through him. But he's the only way to the Father. He's the only way to have peace with God and with yourself and with each other. And so if you're giving your life to Jesus today, I wanna challenge you, jump on our app, fill out our connect form and let us know that you wanna give your life to Jesus today. We'd love to celebrate that decision with you and point you kind of in the right direction from here. But, but I, I love what one scholar said about this peace for the Christian. He said it like this, for for Christians who understand the gospel, peace becomes our heritage and our hope. Our heritage and our hope. Our our heritage in that peace is what we inherit. It's what we receive. We're grafted into it by grace through faith in Jesus. And so this peace becomes our identity. It's like who we are. But it's not just our heritage, he said, it's our hope. Peace is our hope, it's our hope for rest. Paul would say it like this, let the peace of God rule in your hearts. It's our hope for others, for our culture. You see, peace comes through a person. We spread peace by introducing people to Jesus. It's not through power and politics or position, that we spread peace through a person and his name is Jesus. Jesus is our hope for reconciliation. And so maybe you're here today and you find yourself at odds at war with maybe your spouse or a family member, friend, coworker, neighbor. Jesus is your peace. He's your hope for reconciliation. This peace is our hope for the future. We look forward to the second advent when Jesus returns. Revelation 21 speaks of the second advent when we will have a eternal peace with God, a, a, a peace with ourselves, a peace with others, and, and peace with the ground for all eternity. You see, here's our, our, our big idea today, and it's this for the Christian. As we live kind of between the first advent and the second advent, we look back on the first advent because it points to the second advent. The first advent points to the second Advent, you see one scholar said it like this, the Advent celebration is both the commemoration of Christ's first coming and an anticipation of his second coming. As Israel longed for their Messiah to come, so Christians long for their Savior to come again. We live between the Advents, looking back on the first and waiting for the arrival, the Advent of the second. And I love what Isaiah says about this whole story about the first advent, the, the second advent, Isaiah in chapter nine, he says this, this is, this story, like the unfolding of this story, the end of the story is the passionate commitment of the Lord. Some translations use the word zeal, like the unfolding of this story. It, it's, it's happening because of the zeal of the Lord God himself, the passionate commitment of God. This is what, this is what God is doing because of his own zeal. And this word zeal, refers to God's pursuit of his own glory and of your eternal joy. I love that. One scholar said about this word zeal that blended in the usage of the word are perhaps both included. God's glory and your joy. The two motives are identical. That is to say that one includes the other. John Piper pastor and author in our own country said it like this, God's glory and the deepest joy of human souls are one thing. And so God's zeal to, unfold, to reveal this story and to accomplish this story is for his own glory, but it's also for your eternal joy. The heart of a father wanting what's best for his kids, knowing that what's best for his kids is himself. That's why the advent you need is a person, it's Jesus himself, the arrival that you need, what you're waiting on, it's always been Jesus. And today, it's Jesus. And because God is doing this, I love this. It's not, the story is not going to be thwarted by our own lack of faith. I, I love in Luke chapter one, the angel says to Zechariah, who receives news about his own miracle baby, and Zechariah doesn't believe, he's unfaithful. And the angel says to Zechariah, You haven't believed my words, which will come true. I love that. And in spite of your lack of faith, Zechariah, this is still going to happen because God is doing it. God is accomplishing all of this. He is the one unfolding this story and bringing it to its ultimate conclusion. You see, the second advent is coming. God is going to fulfill his promise. In Galatians chapter four, Paul said of the first advent that when the fullness of time came, God sent his son in the form of a baby. And make no mistake that when the fullness of time comes, Jesus will return. And because God is always at work while we're waiting, your wait is never a waste. I love what one scholar said about these verses in Isaiah chapter nine. I I just, I love this picture and the way that he words it. He said this, waiting in faith and hope, the remnant, the faithful people of God, waiting in faith and hope. They're sustained by, by what? By doing better and trying harder? No, but by religious activity, no, 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 no. The faithful, the, the faithful people of God, the remnant of God, they're sustained by the forecast of the great light that shines beyond the darkness. It is a sure hope, so sure that according to Hebrew idiom, it is even written in past tense here in Isaiah chapter nine, as though it had already happened. Because of this confidence, Isaiah can place the light in immediate proximity to the darkness not because it will immediately happen but because it is immediately evident to the eye of faith believers walking in darkness can already see the great light and are sustained by hope and maybe that the best glimpse that we that we get of this light in the darkness this peace in the midst of a war zone, this this peace that will ultimately come and bring an end to this cosmic war that wages inside and between all of us. Maybe the best glimpse of this is Christmas Eve 1914 during World War I on the Western front between the Germans and the British. A man named Bruce Barnes father writes in his memoirs, he was a soldier there that day. He said this, we were spending the holiday eve shivering in the muck, trying to keep warm. i had spent a good part of the past few months fighting the Germans and now in a part of Belgium, I was crouched in a trench that stretched just three feet deep by three feet wide. My days and nights marked by an endless cycle of sleeplessness and fear, stale biscuits and cigarettes that were too wet to light. Here I was in this horrible clay cabin." miles and miles from home, cold, wet, and covered with mud. There didn't seem to be the slightest chance of leaving except in an ambulance. To this point, this is the bloodiest war ever up until that time because of the Industrial Revolution making it so much easier and faster to kill someone. Soldiers are in absolute misery in their trenches and about 10 p.m. on Christmas Eve, Bond's father noticed a noise. I listened, he recalled, away, like across the field, among the dark shadows beyond. I could hear the murmur of the voices. He turned to a fellow soldier in his trench. He said, do you hear the Germans kicking up all that racket over there? The Germans were singing Christmas carols. It was Christmas Eve. And in the darkness, some of the British soldiers began to sing back, and suddenly Barnes' father recalled, we heard this confusing shouting from the other side. We all stopped to listen, and the shout came again. The voice was from an enemy soldier speaking in English with a strong German accent, and he was saying, come over here. And one of the British sergeants answered, you come halfway, and I'll come halfway. Well, what happened next would in the years to come stun the world and make history. Enemy soldiers began to climb nervously out of their trenches and meet in the middle of the barbed-wired-filled no-man's land that separated the armies and was filled with dead bodies. Normally, the British and Germans communicated across no-man's land with streaking bullets with only occasionally gentlemanly allowances to collect their dead. But now there were handshakes and words of kindness The soldiers traded songs, tobacco, and wine, joining in a spontaneous holiday party in the cold night. They even played soccer together as this picture from 1914 illustrates. Right there in no man's land. Barnes father said, our chaps went out to meet them. I shook hands with some of them. They gave us cigarettes and cigars. We gave them some of ours. We did not fire that day, and everything was so quiet. I love this. He said, it seemed like a dream. Then, in the middle of this bloody, awful, dark, dirty war, they experienced this, this moment, a fleeting moment, but just a moment of peace and joy, of hope. It's called The Ceasefire, The Christmas Ceasefire of 1914. It was a dream, he said. And the song that Barnes father remembered the most, he wrote in his memoirs was, O Come, O Come, Emmanuel. We just sang it. Some of the words, think about it, i singing this song in these trenches. Ransom captives mourned in lonely exile here. Free thine own from Satan's tyranny. From the depths of hell, save thy people. Disperse the gloomy clouds of night and death's dark shadows put to flight. Open wide your heavenly home. Make safe the way that leads on high and close the path to misery. O come, O come, Emmanuel. See this this glimpse of joy, of peace, of hope in the middle of a war. Oh, come, oh, come, Emmanuel. Oh, come, oh, come, wonderful counselor, mighty God, everlasting Father, and Prince of Peace. We wait. You pray with me. God, we thank you for this amazing word in Isaiah chapter 9, this prophecy of a child that will be given to us, and he will be a light that shines in the darkness. He'll be a wonderful counselor, a mighty God, an everlasting Father, a Prince of Peace. And God, I just pray that right now, through the Holy Spirit, you would stir our hearts with hope and with faith. God, that in the middle of our own darkness, we would, by faith, see a light. A light that we've already received a deposit of. A light that we already experience and live in, but that at the same time points to the fulfillment of that light when Christ returns. God, stir our hearts with hope and faith. That we might be sustained by hope. Sustained by the hope of that light. Sustained by the Prince of Peace, a person. God, I pray that you would help us by your spirit to quit searching to and fro and going to everything else, looking for peace and fulfillment and joy and satisfaction when you've given it to us in your son, Jesus. And so God, would you change our minds and change your hearts this morning and give us a passionate pursuit of your son, Jesus. We pray these things in Jesus' name, amen. Would you stand as our team leads us in worship?